to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. Brought to you by FunkinStuff.net, this is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, Truth Seekers, and Truth Crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. Hey, before we get started with today's show, I just want to draw your attention to new merchandise. Funkin' Stuff and Truth and Rhythm designs are in, and they look pretty darn cool. So show your support, help support the program, and show off some stylish merchandise and apparel. Only at the Funkin' Stuff store. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership keyboardist Joey Porter, who since 2006 has been a core member of adventurous Colorado-based funk, soul, and jazz band, The Motet. Founded in 1998 by drummer Dave Watts, the group has released eight studio albums, but has been especially prominent on the jam band festival circuit and become famous for amazing live shows. Those include annual Halloween concerts, where since 2000, the group has killed with entire cover sets of all-time greats like the Headhunters, Stevie Wonder, Tower of Power, Prince, The Talking Heads, Sly and the Family Stone, Earth, Wind & Fire, and Parliament Funkadelic. In those performances, the motet doesn't just replicate those sources, but musically inhabits their creative spirits. Their most recent album is 2019's Death or Devotion. Joey, so glad to have you. How are you? Welcome. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. And I assume, are you in Colorado right now? I am. I live right outside of Denver. 
Okay. And are you born there? No, I was born in Nashville, Tennessee, believe it or not. Uh, not the funkiest place, I guess. <laughs> no, but certainly a musical hotbed. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you migrate uh, west? I first moved to Oregon in 94 and uh, lived there for 10 years before I moved to Colorado. I lived in Portland. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love all those areas. I think you're picking good spots, you know? <laughs> yeah, Portland's really nice. I mean, I still go once or twice a year to play gigs there. I love it. Still have some of my best friends in the world still live there. Yeah, yeah. You get some uh, interesting characters in, in, in both Colorado and, and Portland, I think. But uh, it's all good and all fun. And, Absolutely. And a lot of great music, for sure. For sure. Yeah. There's a lot of great musicians in Portland. There really is. So uh, as I was telling you before we got on air, it's a treat to have you on the show. been a fan for quite a while. And I think, you know, I actually discovered the group probably, um, you know, online through uh, like archive.org or something like that, because you guys had long been posting, you know, and before you even joined the group, I think, uh, posting uh, shows on there for people to, to access and to enjoy. And what a uh, great source of, you know, fantastic free material that I would have gladly paid for, but there it was, so. <laughs> well, you know, I think that Motet's always tried to do the sort of Grateful Dead spirit of like, allow people to hear the shows, you know? So we still let people take the shows today. That's fantastic. And, you know, I was blown away that I had not heard of the group previously, being a lifetime, you know, funk and R&B fan. Um, they were new to me at that point, I guess in the early 2000s. And um, just to hear, the authenticity and the playing and the performance and you know how uh connected it was to the groove for real uh, was very impressive well, thank you i think uh the motet started out more as a world beat kind of band maybe that was off that's why it was off your radar it was maybe right around the mid 2000s where it really got focused into a funk project yeah so why don't you tell me, Joey, first a little bit about how you got into music and keyboards specifically, and then we'll talk about how you hooked up with the Motet. Oh, well, uh, I first started playing keyboards as a kid. I was lucky enough to where uh, at my house as a kid growing up, we had a piano, we had guitars, we even had a drum set. So I got to play all those instruments as a young kid, though I never really had any lessons. I would just mess around on them. My mom was a dance teacher, and since I grew up in the 70s and 80s, all the music she was dancing to was music that I now try to make my music sound like, you know, funky, pre-disco funk stuff, and then like post-disco stuff, Gap Band, all that kind of stuff, Zapp and Rogers. I got, I got introduced to that stuff as a real kid, single digit age, and I've just always loved that music. So I think I benefited from my mom being a dance teacher and growing up in the South and just being around, you know, Black folks. <laughs> I was like sort of into that kind of exposed to that music luckily even though i'm from nashville so i got into playing funk music specifically right around 18 19 years old and the only reason i really switched to keyboards from guitar was just because there were so many guitar players and nobody would you know some of those guys were better than me at guitar so i was like okay i guess i gotta switch to keys it ended up being more intuitive for me after all anyway so I'm really glad I made that decision. I still play guitar almost every day, but I don't know if you want to hire me to be in your band or not. <laughs> I know how that is. I have some guitars and there's a keyboard back there also, but uh, 
I'm a dabbler. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I remember actually, uh, you know, especially when it comes to funk music, being a kid going to the roller skating rink, you know, there used to always be a DJ because, you know, there wasn't just, you know, machines that could do all that stuff. It had to be a guy, like some teenage kid up there with like bad acne who would be up there flipping discs for us. And I just remember one time it was like maybe my brother's birthday party or something. And I'm like skating around. All of a sudden I hear Zap and Roger. I don't know what it is, but I hear that like what I think sounds like a computer voice or something. And I, I like ran up to the guy or skated up to the guy and was like, what is that? And this kid was like, that's Zap and Roger. I'm like, what? How does he make that sound? The kid's like, I don't know, man. You know, so I go home. I tell my mom about it. Next time she's going to buy records at the record store for her dance studio. I'm like, I gotta have Zap and Roger, you know? And uh, so she bought it for me. And then I just listened to it over and over and over again. It was, uh, I guess it was Zap 2, I think it was called. I had that and Gap Band 4 that I just would listen to over and over and over again as like a nine-year-old little kid. <laughs> so I've just always had a, a love for it. I don't really know why. Did, what did your uh, friends or, you know, family and, and you know, outside of your mom uh, think of it? Did they take any notice or, or they just were fine? They just thought I was like, you know, different, maybe, you know. Uh, I just had different tastes than everybody else because my parents mostly listened. I mean, you know, they're baby boomers, so they liked Motown and my dad liked some jazz, but it's not like they had really sophisticated tastes in music necessarily, you know. I think I was... Uh, being exposed to the local radio station, it was called 92Q back in Nashville. It was sort of like the, the black radio station. I really learned about Prince and all that stuff that happened in the early 80s as a kid. I just kept it on that radio station. And my brothers and sisters would make fun of me and, and my parents, but you know, what are you gonna do? <laughs> well, you're lucky, uh, Joey, that you got in sort of on the tail end of like real funk, you know, cause it started exactly. tapering off in the early 80s. Absolutely. I think by 84, 85, it was kind of pretty corny by then. <laughs> and, and yeah, the corporate, you know, thing had kind of taken over and, and, you know, the MTV world and all that and um, funk bands kind of were a casualty in a lot of ways by then. But, um, you know, I mean, you got to remember, they didn't even let any, uh, you know, African-American artists on MTV for like a few years or something. So there wasn't going to be. I remember like Rick James and me had to make a big deal about it. They wouldn't let him on MTV. So, you know, I wouldn't have gotten exposed to any of that stuff until at least the late eighties by the time the funk music was already, you know, not where my favorite era. Yeah. Yeah. You're lucky you got exposed to Zap and Gap in early on. Um, so did you have any uh, formal keyboard training or what was, you know, that part of it? Well, I took uh, lessons for like one year when I was nine years old and that was it. But my mom had, uh, she was a piano player. And like I said, we had a piano at the house and I just read books, you know, about how to play and how chords work, majors and minors and different scales and whatever. And I just sort of applied it myself. Uh, you know, I think if you're really interested in something, you'll, you'll figure out how, to, how it works, you know. Formal training's good, but for music like funk, I don't know if it's necessary. So how long was it before you were able to sort of play along with things like, you know, a Zap or a Gap Band? Well, you know, at the same time, I was also into rock music, especially the funkier stuff like Led Zeppelin, you know, and 
people who had some pretty funky beats. So I was learning those songs first before I was trying to learn the funk stuff. They're similar in a lot of ways. They use a lot of the same scales. It wasn't until, yeah, maybe 18, 19 years old that I started trying to play actual funk music, you know? Because mm -hmm. you got to remember too, like, see, I'm old. Like I graduated high school in 1990. By 1990, there wasn't any funk music, you know? And the fact that I liked it, you know, again, people thought I was weird. I mean, you could, there was no internet. I literally went to like the Nashville Municipal Library and would check out albums and cassettes and listen to stuff because it was the only way you could listen to it. You couldn't go to the store and listen to it. And Tower Records didn't have the thing yet. And so I would go into the library and check it out, you know. <laughs> that dates me, I guess, a little bit. <laughs> no, it was like a, uh, a, um, a desert of funk at that time. I mean, there was only a handful of people that were still, you know, doing anything with it, like Prince or Red Hot Chili Peppers and George Clinton right. was still out there somewhere. But um, for the most part, yeah, it was all um, New Jack Swing. And then on the rock side, uh, grunge was about to come in and uh, Guns N' Roses was kind of keeping some real rock in there. But it was um, not a great time for me anyway. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> the the hip-hop stuff that happened after that was really cool though in the 90s like the dr dre kind of stuff or yeah and, yeah, Snoop, yeah. and you know that yeah. sort of 90s was my favorite era of the hip-hop yeah nwa came my in, age yeah. i don't know <laughs> no i i totally agree because that had funk as the basis for so much of it too yeah you know biggie tupac all those guys they they had some real crate diggers making the production for that stuff exactly yeah so what was, you know, the first real band that you sort of became part of and how was it for you getting out on stage and entertaining people? I guess the first band I was in was in high school and I played guitar and sang and we did because none of my other friends were really into funk music very much. We were more into, they were more into like college radio stuff like REM and like Dinosaur Junior, the kind of harder stuff that was happening in the late 80s like mud honey and I don't know, stuff like that. So we played kind of like rock mixed with like that jingle jangle REM stuff in, 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 the, you know, in the late eighties. And I, you know, it was a cool experience. I was very nervous. You know, when you first start doing this, getting up, everybody's looking at you. It's, it's hard at first, you know, uh, I had confidence, but I was still just nervous. I would sweat through my shirt, you know, within the first song, you know, I think the first gigs we ever did, we played like spring day at high school. We played like the prom, that kind of stuff, you know. But uh, I didn't play at a club, you know, until I was 19, I guess, 18 or 19. And then at that point, I was sort of more in like a, I switched to keys and I was doing more like a Little Feet kind of thing. Uh, Little Feet was sort of like, a, it's sort of like a funky thing that can take you from rock music to funk. If you've never heard of funk before, Little Feet's pretty funky for a rock band and you can kind of learn some stuff and like get turned on to funk music through Little Feet. That's sort of, that's sort of what happened to me. Was there anyone at that point, you know, when you started getting serious about music and, and playing in bands that you saw perform live that really just kind of blew you away? Yes. The first time I ever saw a band and was like, I want to play music, I want to do this, was Living Color in 1989. And uh, 
what's funny is they were playing with the Dead Milkmen, which was this punk rock band at the time. And then they had that hit, uh, Cult of Personality, and last minute they switched and they were the headliner and the Dead Milkman opened up, which is great because Dead Milkman is like a punk band, Living Color is amazing. But they put on such a show and they were so funky and they were, they were rocking so hard and their singer Corey was just killing. And I was like, wow, I've never seen anything like this. You know, I had been to concerts with my parents, but you know, nothing cool. That changed my life forever. I was like, I want to do this. This seems so cool. I'm so turned on by this music. I want to turn people on, you know. It was definitely that concert, 1989. Wow, you became part of the cult. Of- <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And interesting a little bit because I don't think, unless they did at that show, had a keyboard player. You know, they were all about the guitar and the bass and the drums. That's right. Um, yeah. At that time, I was still equally doing drums and guitar. I mean, keyboards and guitar. I hadn't fully switched over yet. But by the time I moved to Oregon when I was uh, 21, all I had was a Fender Rhodes and then a bunch of clothes. And that's all I had. (laughs) So That's that's the way to do it. You got to uh, challenge yourself, right? You're going to make it or break it, right? That's it. Yeah. I was lucky. I got a Rhodes for 200 bucks. And then uh, I found a clavinet for 400 bucks on the coast in Oregon. It had mildew on the inside because it's in Oregon. It was in somebody's basement for so long. I cleaned all the mildew out, went on to uh, found some old paperwork because the internet didn't have all that information. I found a guy who had all the schematics on how it works and I fixed the clavinet. Uh, so those are the only two instruments I even had for the longest time, Rhodes and clavinet. And those are two of my favorites still. So as far as keyboards go, who are some of your sort of uh, heroes or, you know, guys that you tried to emulate on the keys? My very two favorite are Herbie Hancock and George Duke. I got George, George's picture right there. Uh, Herbie's probably the, my favorite keyboard player of all time, if not my favorite musician of all time, because it's just so deep, so funky, and his rhythm is perfect. Uh, and, his, and he writes so many good songs. And then, you know, close second place is George Duke. Uh, he's one of my very favorites and um, always loved Stevie Wonder's clavinet playing. Billy Preston was an early influence. Uh, Bernie Worrell, who I got the pleasure of playing like about a dozen gigs with. He was a huge influence on me. Uh, Bill Payne from Little Feet is a keyboard player who I think is pretty funky, might be underrated. Um, those were all the main guys. I'd say, but mostly Herbie. I was just a Herbie fanatic from the time I was like 19 until today. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. That's why I enjoy your playing so much. I'm a Herbie. He's definitely number one for me. Bernie Worrell may be right there too. But um, yeah, Herbie's also so adventurous and, you know, I mean, right. he's unbound in what he does and tries. And Absolutely. In a way for funk music, Bernie might be the most influential funk keyboard player, you know, uh, because he, you know, he really brought out the synthesizer and the clavinet and all that stuff and made it on the radio. It really wasn't on the radio before that much. And uh, so in a way, he might be the most influential, I think. Mm -hmm. Have you gotten to meet Herbie or did you get a chance to meet uh, Duke before he passed away? I didn't. I, I have met Herbie just quickly, just a handshake. Didn't have a conversation with him or anything. Uh, never was able to meet George Duke. Uh, 
Um, but like I said, I got to meet Bernie at least at least a dozen times, and he was always so cool, and so uh, had so much humility, and like uh, wanted to, you know, tell me stories and and give me advice, and I always appreciated it. That's great. That's great. I've only heard great things about him. I met him very briefly. Never got to talk to him at length, unfortunately, but always only good things throughout his entire history is what I've heard. And, and always so giving, you know, wanting to help and share. And Yeah. You know, and, you know, in a lot of ways, he kind of got screwed by Clinton. You know, he didn't get the money that he deserved. He really wrote a lot of that stuff. And, you know, he deserved more because he wasn't rich when he passed away. Yeah, it's a, unfortunately an all too common story that you hear. Yeah. Um, but he's one of the all time greats. So it's even Absolutely. that much more painful. Um, so what were the uh, steps essentially for you uh, ending up aligning with the motet? Well, I was living in Portland and I had this band called Porterhouse was, uh, where I wrote all the songs and it was kind of like a fusion funk thing where there was no vocals and it was drums, bass, uh, keys and saxophone. And we played a bunch and we toured the whole country from 2000 to about 2004. And uh, I met the Motet guys, Dave Watts, and um, we were had similar tastes in music. And uh, I was, I was um, looking for a new project. I was looking to move out of Oregon. I ended up moving to Colorado. But it was definitely, I lived in Colorado for two or three years before I joined the Motet. They had a keyboard player already, but he quit. And then I slipped right in there. <laughs> but we have been friends, me and Dave, since the 90s, just from playing festivals together. And uh, my band had opened up for them at different venues. And uh, I thought they were funky. And I liked their like sort of world beat thing that they were doing. I thought it was different. I was living up in uh, you know the Northwest and everything was kind of grungy at that point. Not that I didn't like it, but I was just sort of sick of it at that point. And I thought it was cool that somebody else was trying to do something besides that. So once I moved to Colorado, which I only moved here to Colorado because it's awesome, not because the music scene was happening. And actually the music scene isn't happening now, but it wasn't when I moved here in 2004, it was just okay. There was only a couple of venues. Now there's endless venues. And so many people have moved from all over the country to live here. And uh, now all of a sudden I have like Adam Deitch who I can call up to play drums if I want, you know, I didn't have that before. <laughs> I call up Schmeens, you know, actually have a gig with them in a couple of weeks. Uh, so I'm lucky all these people have moved here. Yeah, that's way cool. Um, what was it like when you first got with the band? You know, what was the chemistry like and how did you find your, your slot? Well, luckily Dave's real open-minded and uh, was willing to like, let me have some creative, you know, control and some stay and some stuff. And it kind of slowly switched from mostly an Afrobeat and world music thing to sort of a, a funky soul thing too, where we still would do some Afrobeat, but only like one or two out of every 10 songs. And the rest of it was either funky instrumental stuff or vocal stuff. Soon after I joined the band, we got a vocalist, this guy, Lyle Davinsky, who's a great soul singer. And so we were able to write more songs and have like a little less jams and a little more like uh, uh, focused songs. And um, that was cool for a while. But Lyle since has left the band during the pandemic. So now we're kind of back to 
uh, playing a lot of instrumental stuff and having different singers come and join us for different gigs. And on our new album, we're going to have like a few different singers uh, on the album instead of just having one person. Hmm. Interesting. I didn't know he had left. Yeah, I mean, uh, during the pandemic, he just sort of decided he wanted to do some different kind of music, a little more acoustic -y kind of stuff. And actually, he moved to Portland, Oregon. <laughs> yeah. Flip spots. That's right. Um, He's still my homeboy and everything. It's all good. Were there more coffee houses there or in Colorado? <laughs> there definitely is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I, uh, I produced the last record, Death of Devotion, and I'm producing the new record. And so I'll be uh, having different vocalists on the, on the album. I can't tell you who any of them be yet, though, unfortunately. <laughs> when do you expect that to get released? Well, I'm hoping it'll be released uh, by the end of the year. In fact, all the music, all the instrumental stuff is done. We just have to record the vocals. But as the producer, it's hard for me because I'm, because of the pandemic and everything, I'm not flying people in or flying to go and do the session. So I'm going to be doing the sessions remotely, kind of like over a Zoom call in this kind of situation. So it's going to be interesting. It's like the future of production. <laughs> Aside from different uh, singers, anything else to, to look out for stylistically that might be a little different? Well, what we changed is we don't have the horn section anymore, too. So instead, now it's uh, our, um, we don't have the trumpeter anymore and our saxophone player. He plays some sax, but he mostly plays keyboards in every song. And he's a really great keyboard player. So it's now more a five piece with drums, bass, guitar, and two keyboards. So we kind of have more of a early 80s kind of sound, sort of like the Whispers or something like that. Or similar to, uh, I don't know if you knew, I had this band called Juno What? But you should check that out. It's sort of like a Zap and Roger thing where it's most keyboard synthesizers. And I do talk box for all the vocal stuff. And it's definitely like you listen to it and you're like, this guy likes Zap and Roger, obviously. <laughs> yeah. So we're, in, think... we're in that direction, that early 80s thing because of the keyboard heavy stuff. Yeah. So I also think of people like Cameo at that time when they got rid of their horns and uh, and Prince with the you know keys instead of horns. Yeah, I think a lot of those bands did it out of necessity to have to not pay a nine piece band, <laughs> you know, but eventually the, you know, the synthesizers, because they were new, that just became the thing. So everybody wants, wanted synthesizers on their albums, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, once they discovered how to really do it right, it was fine. You know, at, yeah. at first it was like, I don't know, but then, right. you know, <laughs> they got the hang of it. Yeah. Um, so the year that you joined the motet, though, was it 05 or what year was it? I, I think it was 06. And so they already had like three or four records under their belt? Or? They did. And again, it was a little bit different than the funk stuff we do now. It was more like a world beat kind of thing. And then um, when I first joined the band, uh, this music, uh, what was the album called? I think it was called... Instrumental Descent, I think is what it was called. Yeah, in 2006, uh, Instrumental yeah. Descent. I think, I, I think that's the one I played on. I don't even remember now. <laughs> I, think, I think you're correct. <laughs> it wasn't that one, it was the next one. <laughs> I think you did play on that one. I mean, at that's least that's- Back when Dave, Dave was in charge of all the music, you know, he's a really creative guy and he was writing all those songs, you know, almost all the songs that are on the first three or four records he did. He's a pretty prolific guy. 
Wow. What's I've never met him. So what's his, you know, mindset in terms of, um, you know, musical influence, do you think? Well, you know, he's even just a little bit older than me. So he and I have that same sort of rock background, but he also went to school for jazz. He went to Berklee College of Music, got a degree in jazz composition, I think. And he writes a lot of jazzy stuff. Like he's one of those few drummers where if you talk chords and stuff with him, he knows what you're talking about. And he can hear, you know, some of the stuff. You don't have to like dumb it down for the drummer, you know, when you're hanging out with him. And so, uh, you know, he liked my style. And when, once I joined the band, you know, more people started to write. It wasn't just uh, just Dave doing all the stuff. And I think he really likes that, not having to be the guy all the time. So when you got in there, um, it took you a couple of years until you sort of got to the point where you feel comfortable enough to sort of be in more of a producer related type role or. I think so. And maybe just for like Dave, uh, who's the only guy who's been in the band the whole time. He's basically the leader of the band. He takes care of all the day to day stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, I think he needed to get used to me and get trust in me before, you know, he could like sort of, you know, let go of the reins a little bit. But we have a very symbiotic relationship now. I mentioned at the outset some of those uh, Halloween gigs, which I guess maybe aren't continuing, and certainly they weren't last year because of you know the situation. But um, you know, those were some of the first recordings I had heard of the group too. And I, I usually I am down on groups that do a bunch of covers or tribute bands or that kind of thing. But the Motet did it so well that it was great. I was totally on board. You know. Um, so good at, at not only replicating those great sources, like I said in the intro, but you know, really inhabiting it so that you know you bring such an authenticity and real feel to it, and maybe add to it a little bit and put your own spin on it a little bit. That um, it's just great on its own. Well, thanks a lot. You know, I think we like uh, playing original music, and that's why we sort of designate one day a year to where we do a bunch of cover songs. You know. Uh, and by learning all those songs over the last 15 years from all those prolific bands, Tower Power, Prince, Stevie Wonder, you know, all that stuff. And then after that, after we ran out of people, we started doing years. We did 1980, I think we did 75, 77. We, after just, anyway, after learning all these great songs, it really informed me and helped me write songs. And I think, you know, if you're a musician out there and you think you want to, write cool songs you really got to learn all somebody else's stuff first once you learn all that stuff then you'll have the tools to write a better song yourself that's what i really like the best about playing those halloween shows so is that going to continue do you think that tradition or is it done with i don't think that we we probably won't do an all cover set again unless somebody just really wants to pay us to do it we're really trying to uh, you know, come out with our own music and release our own stuff and not be known as a cover band. Uh, so like we like doing it, but at the same time, we don't want people to rely on us to be their cover band. <laughs> well, and your own tunes too are so good. I mean, uh, when I listen to so many of those tracks, I think, you know, in a different era, 
maybe in the 90s or even the 80s, a lot of these, I think, would have been hits and would have gotten radio play, you know, and now it's so challenging, of course, to do that. Yep. Well, and now, too, there's so much to choose from. And there's so many ways to listen to it, you know, in the 80s and even in the 90s, you only had the radio or, you know, there wasn't the Internet. You couldn't just find out about stuff. So in a way, it's cooler because somebody could find you, but it's only those people who are looking for you that find you. <laughs> and so many of those songs are just so polished and so um, they're just executed so well and they're written well and um, you know they sound like hits you know well thanks well I'm also benefiting like especially like some of the songs that I write you know I'm benefiting from Dave being a great drummer and I think uh, Motet has one of the best bass players in the country Garrett Sayers uh, who uh, is maybe a little unsung just because, uh, you know, he lives out here in Colorado and he's he's not a shameless self-promoter. And so uh, people, he's kind of a secret weapon, but I'm really lucky to get to play with him. He's an amazing bass player. If you ask any of the funk guys that are still doing gigs that are around, you know, if you like ask Ivan Neville or somebody like that, they'd be like, yes, Garrett is the bomb. <laughs> Yeah, so I really I get to be, I benefit from him a lot. If you like the way the songs sound, he's a big reason. And, you know, for so many of those who think that maybe there's not as many great funk bands now as there was a couple of decades ago, um, you know, a show like this is to help, you know, illuminate that with the motet being a good example. And Dumpster Funk is another one which you just touched on but there's, oh, yeah. sev there's several nowadays i mean there's at least you know i don't know eight to ten pretty good funk yeah. bands around now i think my favorite is dumpsta and lettuce mm -hmm. uh, those are probably my two favorite funk bands going right now they also yeah. have to be friends of mine <laughs> yeah well neighbors sounds like some of them yeah yeah um I want to mention, uh, and with that in mind, I want to mention some particular tracks so that listeners and viewers uh, can can go check it out if they're not familiar. And going back to the Dig Deep album, um, songs like Nemesis um, and Mighty and Push, those are among you know my favorites on there. I don't know if you guys still perform any of those or not. We still do Nemesis. And Nemesis is an interesting song because that's right when I joined the band and they're really wasn't a band at that point that album uh dig deep that's the first album i was on that's now that i listen to it now that i remember uh there wasn't really a band it was dave and whoever he wanted to hire for the recording sessions so for that song nemesis all he had was a click track and i went in there and with my clavinet he said play a clavinet part in whatever key you want so i just went in there and did that thing that little lick that happens throughout the whole song and then dave just made a whole song around it then he got a bass player you know and had a bass player come in and he put drums behind it so really dave wrote that song but i guess i kind of planted the seed with that clav thing and you know the song bloomed from there the other two songs we don't play uh, very much stuff from that era motet anymore um, but we do still play nemesis yeah, Nemesis is sort of like a kaleidoscopic, you know, flavor, I think, with what you're talking about. And those other two songs are more of an afro thing. You know, Dave is really into Fela Kuti, and uh, he wrote a lot of sort of Fela-ish songs. 
Yeah, and I hear some meters in there too. Absolutely. But you know, like Fela, meters, and James Brown, they all have big similarities in the language they're speaking musically. Definitely. Um, then the Motet in 2014, that was a much more, you know, for lack of a better term, I would say commercial record, um, more accessible, uh, more really catchy, you know, radio friendly, club friendly type songs. And just, it's hard to even pick favorites on there because it's just so solid from beginning to end. Oh, thank you. You know, um, great party record. Right on. Well, that's what we were going for. You know, we want, that's what funk music is, I guess, you know, like not to pigeonhole it, but it's not like, um, you know, it's usually like, let's have fun, forget about your worries kind of vibe is usually what funk is about, you know. Rhino dub, is that how you say that one? Yeah, Rhino dub. Our uh, guitar player, Ryan Jalbert, he wrote that song. We all, all, and everybody in the band really loves reggae music too. So that's sort of a reggae adjacent kind of song. <laughs> and that's a crowd pleaser. People always love that. We play it live. Keep, keep on, don't stop. And yeah. When that's I heard a that... collaborative song that we kind of all wrote together. I came up with the keep on, don't stop in the lyric. And it was actually a joke. It was like we were in the studio talking about how funny it is to be in a funk band and how you're like a you're like in a pep rally half the time. And like how it's like you keep saying, you know, don't stop. And you can't stop stopping. You have to keep on don't stopping. And I was just making a joke. Everybody laughed about it. And then we ended up calling the song that. <laughs> <laughs> we were just sort of making fun of ourselves. Uh, you know, in that track, I think it's that one. Some of the playing reminds me a little bit of uh, like Madhouse, which was a Prince offshoot instrumental oh, yeah. band, you know, totally, which is a cool sound that yeah. I definitely like. Yeah. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends and become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinslift.net. Thank you very much.